Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about Roger Zelazny's 1965 short story or novella, The Furies. We're going to be covering this in two episodes. We'll be doing our recap episode now, and then we'll be back with our discussion. The Furies came in second on our Patreon vote. First place was The Blackstone by Robert E. Howard, which we did last time. Uh, Other stories that won this time around include uh, The Transformation of Martin Lake by Jeff Vandermeer. It's a really great story I'm looking forward to. And The River Styx Runs Upstream by Dan Simmons, which is also a real creepy, real good story. Yeah, I'm excited for this uh, Dan Simmons short story. I've really only read two of the Hyperion novels and... One or two of his horror novels, maybe three of them. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Uh, but we also covered, speaking of horror, uh, a novella called Nadelman's God by T.E.D. Klein. This was the runner up in the Patreon vote. And we've already covered that uh, on Patreon. But let's talk about the Furies here a little bit. This is a really early Roger Zelazny story, and it's got a lot of quirks to it, I think. The world building's really great. Uh, The story's really cool. It's kind of got this getting the band together feel. It's got a villain origin story, and there's a lot of great ideas in it. And uh, I'm excited to cover it so that we can get to our discussion, because uh, I think there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that Zelazny was working with, and I think we really need to engage with whether or not we think he, he, he pulled off the trick. I'm inclined to think he did, but... I don't know. There are some things that trouble me about the way he went about pulling this off. I don't know if you felt the same way, Glenn, but we'll, we'll have plenty to talk about. Right. I think the, the thing you're dancing around, right, is that we, we're reading this story out of the uh, this really beautiful uh, set that the New England Science Fiction Association has put together that's collected every piece of short fiction and, and poetry that Zelazny did that also then uh, comes with like it comes with an apparatus and has uh, extra textual information. And one of the things that we get about this story is the rejection letter for this story, right? So we'll be taking that up in the discussion for, for sure, right? This was rejected the first time he sent it out. And uh, for reasons that I think are probably pretty good, but we'll have to check in and, and, and see how we really feel about it is what you're getting at. But that will be for the discussion episode. So let's get into the recap here. As an afterthought, nature sometimes tosses a bone to those it maims and casts aside. Often, it is in the form of a skill, usually useless, or the curse of intelligence. So that is the opening of this story, the opening of The Furies. And it is specifically, these lines specifically are referring to the character we're going to meet in the next sentence. But it seems like it also is probably one of the themes of the story. So we will find out if that is true or not. But before we go and meet that character, we should say a few words about the setting of the story. This is a space story. It is sometime in the future, you know, maybe it's a few hundred years, maybe it's a thousand years. In any case, humans have settled 149 worlds in the galaxy, or really, you know, 148, right? Not including Earth. Uh, Earth is still around. It's just fine. It is the, the center of the interstellar government here. And that's all we really need to know at this point in the story. So, yeah, now let's go meet that character. This is the the first of three characters who are going to, you said, get the band together, I think, Brandon. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking of this really as kind of a, a D&D adventure party is what this feels like to me. This character's name is Sandor Sandor, and he has a special skill. 
He is a savant at <laughs> landography, which is really just to say geography, except that it's applicable to all planets, not just Earth, right? The, the geo there, meaning Earth. Uh, Sandor Sandor earned a PhD in landography when he was just 14. Uh, he's also got something of a real crazy photographic memory. So he can identify the image of any landmass from anywhere in the galaxy and can even identify just about any street in any community on any of the 149 human worlds. So basically, he's got the entirety of like Google Maps Street View for 149 human worlds stored in his brain uh, as, as like a type of recall memory. But Sandor Sandor has to live as a shut in. He has a degenerative muscular disease that makes it impossible for him to use uh, even prosthetic limbs. Uh, and he doesn't have or, or doesn't have use of, I, I'm not sure I was clear on that, but three of his limbs. Still, he's got books and he's able to use, you know, space Zoom basically to communicate with scholars. Uh, in fact, actually, he does his PhD defense over Zoom, which did not feel exciting and science fictional <laughs> reading this story <laughs> at this point, right? But along with that detail, we also learned that the interstellar government listens to every Zoom call. And that means that there was a government agent listening in when Sandor's advisor mentioned something about his special Google Maps, you know, photographic brain ability. And that government agent wrote a report. And it's a report that is going to come back in a few scenes. Right. One thing also to point out here uh, that really perked up the government man's ears is that Sandor Sandor beat the computer in this kind of task of naming all the streets. And so that's a big deal. I mean, what Zelazny is really saying here is that Sandor Sandor has a, like a superpower but, and I think that, you know, memorizing streets of, of places you can't f visit feels like a, a profoundly sad superpower. <laughs> and, and the way that Zelazny is able to combine this sort of sense of pathos, it's really a kind of irony, um, with this science fiction universe world building is uh, a style of exposition that I'm a huge fan of. I mean, this is the right character to open up the story with. Because this character has a sense of the whole universe and we're given it directly through this character's, uh, I don't know, pathos. So I really do love the opening of this story. And it, you're right. It, it certainly is the thesis of the story on some levels, that uh, opening paragraph that you read. But I think more importantly, if you squint a little bit, this is the basic concept of M. Night Shyamalan's film, Unbreakable, as well. Where <laughs> Mr. Glass is more of a Sandor Sandor type. And I think that the basic character work that Zelazny is aiming for in this story feels like it might have influenced M. Night Shyamalan as well. We'll, we're going to be talking about superheroes and stuff in our in our discussion because uh, it's a part of what was on Zelazny's mind when he wrote this story. Well, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it quite in in those terms. I mean, like the superhero ness of it did, but you pointing out the the sadness, the kind of you know loneliness of this ability, right? I mean, Sandor Sandor is someone who really ought to be at you know Professor Xavier's school, right? And and in fact, actually, right, the X Men has come out just in exactly at the time that Zelazny. Is writing this story. The first X-Men issue is 1963. So, you know, I, that might be an influence here. That might be something worth talking about. And of course, the other thing, right, this whole beating the computer thing, right, this is also the era when uh, chess masters were very much afraid that computers were going to be able to beat them. Computers were able to beat them. And so this idea of if you can beat the computer, right, that's when you know you're really 
really like the super best at a thing, which is this is not like a shorthand that we use anymore. I think we've all just given up on that <laughs> at this point. Right. But here in the 60s, that was like definitely a, an indication of, of like pure awesomeness and also was a real anxiety that people were having. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh the Misfits, uh, a British TV show where like, you know, the superpowers aren't super intelligence or anything like that. But like one of the main villains, uh, I think at the end of season two, his uh, superpower is the ability to control dairy. And I think that's right. the type of superpowers that <laughs> Zelazny has in mind, mostly in this story. But, you know, to give us the real shorthand here, as you said, Glenn, it's Sandor Sandor can beat the computer. Right. Yeah. Gosh, Misfits. That is uh, that was we got to cover that somewhere on the <laughs> on the network. What a show. Yeah, that was like just a big Magneto spoof there. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got two other characters in our adventure party we need to go meet. So uh, let's go do that. So first up is Benedict Benedict. Uh, he also has, you know, a power. He's got some kind of mind reading power. If he touches you, he can access your memories, and he really enjoys doing that. He especially likes to watch you have sex uh, in your memories, to be clear. But he can also find out your secrets, which he also enjoys doing. And his power extends also to material objects. So if you've touched a pen, then he can use it later to find out where you are. This power, it's not a secret. In fact, it's how Benedict makes a living and makes a really good living using it. He works for insurance companies a lot, but also sometimes the government. He basically freelances with this superpower to find people, essentially. Uh, and then we've got Lynx Lynx. Uh, presumably, right, you're noticing a pattern with these names by now. Uh, <laughs> this one is Lynx as in the predator cat with the big paws, and then Lynx as in golf. Uh, Lynx is an assassin for interstellar central intelligence, uh, the ICI, uh, or, you know, he was anyway. He's retired now after 50 years on the job, but he was the best assassin they had. Lynx is also real serious about his religion, which teaches that all life is one and all men are brothers and that love rather than hate or fear should rule the affairs of men. And Zelazny tells us that Lynx had even killed, he'd even you know, performed his job as an assassin with love in his heart, right? respecting and revering the person and the spirit of the man who had been marked for death. But as I said, Lynx is retired from all of this. Uh, he's got three wives. He's got a horde of grandchildren. Of course, he, you know, like Sandor, like Benedict, he's going to be called into action uh, in, in a service here, right? In some way, we're going to find out what that is in the next section. Yeah, I think Lynx Lynx is a combination of Ernest Hemingway and Nick Fury. And, and you just won't be able to convince me other, otherwise. Uh, I want to, before I get back to Lynx Lynx here, I want to talk about Benedict Benedict. We get introduced to this term paranorm in relation to this character. And we're going to get a little bit more info about this concept later in the story. But that's kind of the idea that Zelazny has about these characters. There's something, as we saw in that opening paragraph, extra special about them, uh, paranormal, that allows them to have these powers. And Benedict, you know, the cost of his power is that he weeps while he's doing this mind reading routine. And his real superpower isn't mind reading. It's like gossip and getting people to hate him, I think. <laughs> but what, what's really jumped out to me about Benedict's powers, and I guess this goes with uh, Sandor Sandor's powers as well, why Sandor was able to beat the computer, is that 
their attention, Benedict's in particular, is hyper-selective, as all human minds are. You know, he knows exactly what he wants to look for. He knows what to find. He's not merely inundated with data and processing it. He's like a being that has an attention that reaches out for certain things. And so one way that we can know about ourselves is to like pay attention to what we actually are paying attention to in in a metacognitive sense, like what rises to the surface when we're just looking at a a blank wall of information, so to speak. Blank wall is the wrong term to use there, but just a (laughs) wall of information. Um, So that's really interesting to me because what Benedict looks for reveals a lot about himself as as well, that he's kind of got this really grimy side to him where he's interested in gossip for its own sake. That's just who he is as a character. And we don't know why. I mean, this isn't an episode of Smallville where like the fatal flaw is the thing that kryptonite (laughs) makes really big uh, for the person. But anyway, I I, want to point out another thing that comes up in this Benedict Benedict passage, which is that when Benedict is sharing, exposing the secrets of others in this gossip sense. Zelazny says that the hearers are left with this just raped feeling. And that, you know, it carries the connotation of sexual violence. I think that's why, Glenn, you, you pointed out that uh, Benedict Benedict like looks for watching people have sex, though it's not quite that he's trying to watch people have sex. It's that he's trying to get dirt and scandal off of them. So, That connotation, I think, carries through. And I wonder if also, though, if Zelazny is on some level ignoring the connotation of this word, maybe he's trying to like reintroduce its older usage as the notion of taking something or someone by force is in like kidnapping or robbing. You know, the great literary example of this is the title The Rape of the Lock, the poem by Alexander Pope about the theft of of a lock of hair off of a woman's head. In any event, if the, if I were to change just one thing about the story, it's Zelazny's use of this word, because in each case that he uses it, this is the first case he uses it in another case. It's just simply the wrong word, I think, for what he's trying to get across. He's trying to emphasize that that people are aware that Benedict has gotten into their minds and learned things about them and that they feel that as a violation. I was really... Uh, uneasy with the 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 use of just raped there uh just raped feeling it just seemed so snide to me it seemed like it was almost dismissive of the experience of being sexually assaulted uh, and i yeah that really made me uncomfortable it, it definitely is something that i would i would circle with a red pen for sure it's it's just the wrong word choice but i i you know we can raise it now and then it will come up. It, the word does appear again in the story, but it's, you know, it's simply the wrong word. If I were the editor here, I'd say use a different word, violation, theft, uh, burgled, anything <laughs> would be better. And especially the way that Zelazny uses uh, rape a second time in this story has that much stronger connotation of the old usage that, you know, like Alexander Pope is using that I brought up, um, but it's still the wrong word. So I just... I just wish you hadn't have used those words. And I don't think it was a popular word to throw about in the 60s in fiction either. So uh, it's just a strange choice. Let's talk about Link's Links here for a second. You know, I will say that 
I think I guess Lynx's superpower is like his organizational skills, uh, organizing <laughs> mercenaries or something. But he can also kill people real good, too. And, you know, I will say that uh, capping off the end of, of Lynx Lynx's character sheet here, uh, Zelazny has really done an awesome job of, as I said, getting the band together. But Glenn, when I say get the band together, I mean the same exact thing as you when you're talking about uh, putting a D&D party together. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and this is, you know, this is where the story has the most of this comic booky feel to it. The way this opening and the introduction of these characters is structured is very much like you'd see in like a five or six panel page of, uh, of a comic book. And uh, if I recall correctly, Glenn, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're not a huge fan of the getting the band together trope. Uh, I'm, I think I'm, a, or at least I should say I'm a bigger fan of it than you are, I think. But I really like the way Zelazny has kind of structurally innovated this on this uh, theme here. I, I think it works really well for this story. Yeah, I think when you and I have talked about this before, you know, off mic and maybe like literally decades ago, <laughs> we've talked about this. It was definitely on screen rather than on page. I love this sort of thing on page, actually, but I do not like the sort of getting the band together, getting the gang together montage type of sequence uh, sort of thing that was really popular when we worked together 15 years ago. <laughs> that was, I think, probably what I was complaining about. That's uh, <laughs> That would be my guess, because I really like the way Zelazny is doing this here as well. And, you know, we have just been critical of of Zelazny's word choice, I, I guess. But I want to point out that there's some really brilliant writing, I mean, throughout the story, of course. And I really want to call attention to how Zelazny introduces the character of Lynx. Lynx here he uses one sentence to do that, to, to introduce and describe him. And it's super impressive from a craft perspective. So let me just read this. Lynx Lynx looked like a beach ball with a beard. A fat patriarch with an eye patch, a man who loved good food and drink, simple clothing, and the company of simple people. He was a man who smiled often and whose voice was soft and melodic. It's just a it's a beautiful way to tell us everything we need to know about this character in one sentence. Yeah, and it works especially well here because of the way that Zelazny has structured this it is a montage. I mean, it's a montage is a visual thing, but it's a literary right. sort of montage <laughs> sequence where we're just getting these quick introductions to these characters. And now we're, by the time we get to links, links, we're used to getting information and introductions this quickly. And so by the third one, as cut this introduction down to a third of the length that Sandor Sandor and Benedict Benedict's introductions were. And it just works. It just, it, it's a brilliant pacing choice as well. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this story just, it just zips. It's very quick. And, uh, you know, we, I guess we should probably zip here as well, because we do actually need some some backstory. Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, like this has all actually been backstory so far, I guess. Right. <laughs> but what I mean now is that we're going to get not just character backstory, but some plot backstory. And Zelazny uses two pages at this point to give us really an entire novel's worth of story. It's impressive work here. Again, Victor Corgo was the captain of the Wallaby, a proud guardship, a, a warship of the interstellar space Navy. It's not called that, right? But that's what it is. So well, that's what I'm <laughs> going to use to describe it. Mostly what this means here is fighting space pirates, also ugly aliens. Corgo had 45 years of service when he went on his last mission. Uh, this was a mission to destroy a pirate stronghold on the planet Kilsh, which was marked to become the 150th human inhabited planet. 
but it didn't go very well. Uh, he lost his entire crew, his ship crashed into the planet, and Corgo himself only barely survived. Uh, and in fact, he only survived at all because some of the native sentient species, the Drillin, saved him. The Drillin are described as nomadic, ugly, and intelligent. They're basically furry quadrupeds. And when he's healed, Corgo recovers the wallaby with the help of the Drillin, and he even trains the Drillin to crew the ship. And so now that he's got his spaceship back, has a new crew, he attacks the pirates, and this time he wins. But then he receives an order to use the wallaby to exterminate all the Drillin on the planet. And the reason for this is that the planet has been selected for human settlement, and therefore the native inhabitants need to be removed. And they've been offered removal to a reservation planet, but they've refused. And so now they have to be exterminated. But Corgo refuses to carry out this order. And when another ship comes to do the job instead, it might actually be several ships. That's not really clear to us. But Corgo fights and he, he loses this battle and he even dies during the battle. He dies trying to prevent his own comrades from carrying out this genocide. But then he is resurrected. He's resurrected by means of an artificial heart. Uh, his real heart had actually given out during the battle. And of course, the government has healed him. And they've done this simply so that they can put him on trial. And so he's under arrest at a detention camp, uh, along with six Drillin, who were his crew. Uh, really, it's just one Drillin now, though, because the other five all died while being studied by scientists. But Corgo is not going to stand for this. So he escapes with the last of the, the Drillin. Uh, her name is Mala, by the way. Uh, so Corgo and Mala, they escape. And Zelazny concludes this section with, Then did the man without a heart make war upon mankind. Uh, and we're going to find out more about that in the next section. But I think we need to point out that some of this plot stuff here, or like the gimmick of this anyway, we we saw in the graveyard heart. Yeah, the last thing seems to have on his mind the mechanics of settling new planets with with sentient life and he's kind of also concerned about genocide <laughs> that will happen and this is a real problem for me in this story uh when we get into kind of the ethics of the hero and villain relationship that develops throughout this story or the roles that the heroes and villains play in this larger uh, cosmological society. But I will say this, that the Victor Corgo story is an excellent villain origin story. I think I've, I've said this already. The hero gone bad to me is such an underused concept. It's so, it's so infrequently used. And, you know, it's not quite the case that Corgo has gone bad. It's, it's more that his alliances have shifted as the result of love. Uh, he, he, falls in love with one of the Drillin. Uh, and I think we're meant to understand that the Drillin have been genocided. They've all been killed except for this one. And the result then is that Victor Corgo's motivations are positive in some sense. And the story really paints this interstellar federation as less than good. It's a, It's an organization that's ruthlessly committed to imperial expansion, which does quite a lot of harm for many sentient beings. And so, yeah, Corgo rebels. And now we're left wondering if this makes him good or evil. We've just got all the hero introductions and now we have the villain introduction. And now we're left with these questions of like, well, is this standing institution of the interstellar federation or whatever it's called interstell good just because it's persisting in its existence 
how does Cortigo cross this line? Are the heroes supporting this institution good? These are the questions that I think Zelazny is shooting for in his story. And it's just, it's really fascinating. It's actually super crunchy and thorny. And we're going to be getting into that in our discussion. I also want to bring up that there's this sort of undertone here also of Corgo being like a race trader or something along those lines as an argument for him being the bad guy because of his relationship with the Drillin. And this is something that I think will have to come up in our discussion as well. Right. This immediately all just calls the the whole question of who's a white hat and who's a black hat in the story. Right. It just becomes a question which is unclear to us at this point. But then we also have to wonder, like, what do we actually mean by space pirates at this point? Right. Are these actually, you know, real Pirates who who need to you know have their operations shut down here, or or are we really thinking here more like you know Malcolm Reynolds or something like that? Well, I think Corgo is definitely going to look more like a Malcolm Reynolds here uh, as the story continues. That's that's from <laughs> yeah. that's from Firefly. Uh, yeah, I don't. I just I just don't know. It's something we're really going to have to think about here because it's it's very thorny. The more I thought about it over the course of the past week or so, the more. I don't know, confused or dismayed, I have gotten about the politics of this story, which almost never happens. But I'm so confused by them in this story that like, I think a good chunk of our discussion is going to be trying to understand just what is ethically okay. And what if Selassie is even going for a kind of a politics or he's exploring something else completely. There's quite a bit in this story that is critical of this this interstellar government and, and actually just not even the government, but just the, the society, the civilization itself. And in fact, the the next section of this of this novella is entirely about this. Uh, it's it's about space mining, but it's highly critical about the whole material civilization here of of this uh, of this future that he's imagined. And the, the first line of this is, and you, you've alluded to this already, Brandon. The first line of this is. Raping a planet involves considerable expense. Uh, and from there he goes on. And, and it's really, I think, also some of his best writing in this story. Just some marvelous wordsmithing here. He goes on to describe how space miners use massive spaceships to carry equipment to an empty planet. They then strip mine that planet and use this ship to, to carry off the resources. And it's brutal. And Zelazny's description of this is highly critical of this practice. But what matters for the plot here, actually, is that Corgo uses his warship. It's uh, the, the Wallaby. He's got it back somehow. It doesn't really matter. But he's got the Wallaby back. So he uses the Wallaby to attack these space mining ships. Zelazny does not spell this out for us, but presumably this is like crippling to the space frame civilization, right? It threatens the material comfort of trillions of people because this is not, you know, this is not like a, a space civilization that actually has replicators. I'm really confused uh, by a lot of what is going on in this section as well. As you said, the wordsmithing itself is is wonderful. Uh, but I, I wonder if Zelazny's poetic impulses kind of haven't overtaken his uh, his the need for exposition here. let me let me read a a brief section of this passage just to give everyone a sense who's not reading this story of what's going on. So I'll just start from the top here. And this is all written almost in in a prose poem style. Raping a planet involves considerable expense. The profits are more commensurate. Do not misunderstand. It is just that they could be even greater. How? 
Well, for one thing, the heavy machinery involved is quite replaceable in the main. That is, the machinery which is housed within the migrant metropoli. Moving it is expensive. Not moving it isn't. For it is actually cheaper in terms of material and labor to manufacture new units than it is to fast phase the old ones more than an average of 2.6 times. Mining combines do not produce them and wouldn't really want to. The mining manufacturing combines like to make new units as much as the mining combines like to lose old ones. And this goes on a little bit, but I, I guess where I get confused, as Corgo is destroying these you know, floating metropoli, the real loser here is the insurance companies at the, at the end of the day. I guess the implication, as you pointed out, Glenn, is that these mining operations are also losing all of their material goods, but that wasn't clear to me as well. I don't know quite when Corgo is striking these people, like if he's trying to prevent another genocide and strip mining, or if he's waiting until they're done to destroy the machinery and the people. But as it's cheaper, in a sense, to lose the people and the machinery, I don't, I don't know if Corgo is really like secretly benefiting these companies and just sticking it to the insurance companies. Or if he's doing like a much greater harm, I really wanted to get your sense on that. Now, um, this I don't know. It didn't didn't make sense to to wait for the discussion to really understand just what is happening here and like who was Corgo really harming? This is the oil industry. That's what's being talked about here, right? This is Zelazny commenting on the fossil fuel industry in the in the 1960s. Raping the planet is a, a phrase that's being used by environmentalists at this time. And so Zelazny is using that intentionally here. And he's describing these miners as showing up at these uninhabited worlds and and just destroying them, right? Raping them, taking them for everything that they are, destroying them just to get the material resources from them. And so I think then the implication here are a number of things, right? Is showing then that even to do that, they're disposing of other things that they've taken from other planets, right? The the digging of metal out of uh, the surface of a planet to make an in industrial machine out of it for a single application, simply because it's actually cheaper for these mining companies to just buy a new one than it is to actually use fuel, presumably to get it out of orbit again and to transport it across, you know, through interstellar space, I guess. Right. And so showing the, the disposable mindset of, or the mindset towards disposability here and and temporariness, right? That this is not a sustainable economy is the point. That's what Zelazny is showing us here. But then I think in terms of what Corgo is doing that is damaging to this civilization is not simply like sticking it to the insurance companies, though Zelazny is invoking insurance companies a lot in this story. That's also <laughs> clearly something that's on his mind. I don't know if he was in a car accident recently and had like a claim denied or something, <laughs> right? But that seems to be on his mind here as well. But well, what he's really got in mind here is, is if Corgo were uh, blowing up all of the oil tankers on their way to America, what would that do to our society? If suddenly gasoline is scarce, that that's what he's got in mind here. That makes a lot of sense. I just I think the way that Zelazny has written this out and the emphasis on the damage to the insurance companies instead of like the material uh, comfort of citizens here has kind of get, made given a disservice, I think, to the exposition in some way. So I'm really glad you straightened that out for me so so we can have a real sense of because uh, I wasn't sure in reading this passage a couple times 
whether or not Corgo was secretly doing these mine companies a favor because destroying the machines is actually in some way good for the mine company, the loss of goods, like if a ship goes down and the insurance company's on the hook for it, like who are the real losers? It it just simply is not clearly exposited in this section of of the story. No, it it is not. And I, you know, this is one of the instances I think we, you know, we'll talk about this in the discussion, right? But I think this passage might even be what the editor who rejected the story the first time maybe even had in mind here, right? Which is that there's actually not enough exposition here. There's a lot of beautiful description, uh, poetical language and and stylistic uh, approach to to doing this with with sentences left uh, uncompleted and uh, ellipses and, you know, single words with question marks. And then, yeah, this weird focus on the insurance companies rather than on like what actually would be the result of blowing up a, uh, a spaceship, a cargo ship the the size of Manhattan that is is carrying with it the entire material bounty from having destroyed you know a whole planet right we have to infer all of that uh, it's not spelled out and that is a strange it's a strange choice so I, yeah I look forward to you know because it's also not the only place right where Zelazny makes that kind of strange choice and doesn't do as much exposition as maybe uh, you know an audience might expect here in the 1960s so yeah it'll be it'll be fun to talk about that in the discussion yeah, this is the only one that really threw me uh, in the in the story. So, as I said, I'm really glad we took just a minute here to to straighten this out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, obviously, Corgo, he's a problem, and that is actually where now our three characters with the repetitive names, our our heroes, <laughs> come in. The government is sending them after Corgo. And we've taken some time getting to this point. We're actually only seven pages into the story. We've got thirty to go here. But I am actually going to zip us through those 30 pages fairly quickly because it is a lot of plot detail that I don't think we really need. It, it, it's a lot of fight scenes is what, I, what I'm saying here. So <laughs> our group has been assembled to go after Corgo. Uh, the going after is really up to Benedict and Sandor. Uh, Benedict can use Corgo's real heart. They actually, like the government kept his real heart after his surgery. So Benedict has it now and he can use Corgo's real heart to get into Corgo's mind, even over, you know, distances of light years. And so the idea is that he will describe what he's seen. Uh, he'll describe that to Sandor, who will be able to figure out where that is because he's got this crazy, you know, Google map street view in his brain. And then they'll go there. And then that's where Lynx will step in. Lynx will coordinate the actual assassination of Corgo. So everyone's got a role. But, you know, that's the plan on paper. We'll see how it actually works out, right? Because Benedict keeps checking on Corgo while he's in some kind of stasis for spaceflight, and it is not a good experience. And after a few days of this, Benedict actually loses his power. He just can't get into anyone's mind now. This is a bit of a weird scene. I also think it's poorly timed. I mean, first, right, Benedict, he does get his powers back. And, and this is because Sandor has a caregiver who is traveling with them. And it turns out that... Uh, she used to be a burlesque performer, and Benedict is really into that. And so, I don't know, he gets his groove back or or something, I guess. But the other thing here is that this just seemed way too early for a lose your powers scene. Right? I think this actually would have been way better placed after we've seen those powers in action a little bit more. And also, like, at a more critical juncture in the plot rather than right at the beginning of it. So several strange choices here. I think that Zelazny realized that he's written a story without any real obstacles for our heroes. And so by putting so much of the success of the plan to take down 
Corgo on Benedict's ability to do his job and then taking that away, I think was his way of really providing an, an obstacle for the heroes. But, you know, we see Sandor. Sandor actually has very little to do because Benedict can kind of, since he's in the mind of Corgo, can just tell them where they're going. <laughs> so like, right. Since the last also has to come up with a reason for Sandor Sandor to be there links. It's obvious why he's there. He's got to organize the assassination. As you said, there, there's a lot of world building stuff in this section as well. And, and you're right to zip through this because too much of this story is these kinds of fight and action scenes or, uh, incidental details, but some of these I really like. So for instance, uh, you know, we get a little more about Lynx's religion here. He's got he, this sense of the unity of all being. And, and you know, he doesn't shake hands with people because he doesn't need to be reminded that all men are brothers. But then, you know, I begin thinking of like, how does this religion justify killing? Something like that would seem very pacifistic to me on some level. Um, Sandor expresses that birth is an accident. So he's like, you know, an anti-natalist or something like that. Um, but what really jumped out to me is the fact that they have non-addictive booze. And uh, I just kept on thinking about, I mean, you brought up replicators, Glenn, but like, this is the scene where I was like, man, we really need replicators. I want this non-addictive brandy uh, to, to drink. But yeah, let's go back to this Benedict, Benedict thing. The whole scene with with Miss Barbara you read as kind of Benedict being into the burlesque performance or the fact that she was a courtesan but I I really read this as her reigniting Benedict's love of gossip she has all these stories from when she was a courtesan that she can kind of tell and remind Benedict of of all these connections and scandals and dirt that he he really loves. And so my sense was that all she did was remind him why he's in this business in the first place, which is to just love having dirt on people. Um, less so than than the fact that, you know, she's a burlesque performer. But I think both are kind of implied in in this text. Well, I think it's fair to say that I read Benedict Benedict as more of like a porn addict than you did. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I, I read him maybe more as a, just a pure gossip, just somebody who loves to have power over people based on information. So, hey, both readings are here present in the text, I think. <laughs> there's, there's one more world-building detail I want to point out here. Zelazny points out that there are only 19 paranorms. And this is miraculous. I mean, this would genuinely be a miracle. There would be no real way to categorize this. I mean, the government has this word for these people, but in a system of what must be billions and billions of people, having only 19 known people with paranormal abilities is uh, a miracle. It's not really replicatable. It's not really scientific. It's just, it, it is an accident, as Sander Sander points out. And this just got me to think that these planetary governments must have lots of research money available to find out and catalog, you know, who all these people are. But they're all so different that it's almost impossible to understand how they have their powers or, or what makes their powers work and what happens when the powers are gone. They just they have enough to know about these people, but for some reason, they're not studying them like they did the drill in. Uh, and that's just a really kind of fascinating, I don't know, cognitive 
dissonance, I think, that that's kind of in the story as well. One of the other things that Zelazny clearly has on his mind about what uh, you know America is looking like in the 1960s, uh, and, and in particular, right, the early 1960s, so before the, the Vietnam War is in full force here, but in the, the early years of the Cold War and the space race and so on, is the bureaucracy right of of this empire and that just the endless cataloging of of information and and how bureaucracy functions or, or malfunctions or just just fails to function right how inefficient it all actually is so just a lot of focus here on the institutions in Zelazny's own life here I mean this really is a science fiction story that is about the present and not at all really about the future. Well, all right. So now we're at the point where I really, really want to zip through a ton of pages all in one breath. The team is functioning well. Benedict, uh, he's got his powers back, right? So Benedict taps into Corgo's mind by holding his dead heart in his hand. Sandor figures out where Corgo is. And they don't really chase after Corgo so that Lynx can then assassinate him because as we've we've hinted at a little bit already, Lynx is really more of a planner and coordinator. He really just gives his instructions to other people who are called executioners, right? So assassin in this world seems to mean, you know, the, the coordinator, right? Rather than the person who's actually using the weapon, actually uh, taking the life of the the person who's targeted here. They, they try this once, uh, no success. Uh, in fact, the executioners themselves are, are killed. They try it again from a distance this time with, I don't know, like laser guns or something. And now they have succeeded. Except not really. They just think that they have. Uh, Corgo, he's badly wounded. He's very burned, he was living in a house with Mala. He'd gone into hiding. And then in the attack, the house also collapsed on him. So he had to crawl away. And it turns out that living near him is a retired space sailor. It's a space sailor who used to be one of his crew on the Wallaby a long time ago. And this space sailor finds Corgo, nurses him back to health. Mala has also survived. Uh, so also has their dog. Uh, they've been hiding in a cave, but now they're all living at the space sailor's house while Corgo recovers. Uh, the space sailor's name is Emil. And, and here we come to really the crux of all of this, the, the real point. Corgo wants Emil to come with him when he leaves, right? He needs a crewman. But Emil knows what Corgo has been up to. And he hasn't turned him into the authorities out of a sense of friendship and also because they have this shared history and he's been nursing him back to health because that's the, the right thing to do. It feels like that's the moral choice here, but he's not going to go off and be a terrorist. Corgo tries to justify his actions here by explaining how their government committed genocide and he's fighting that. But Emil shoots back with, but random civilians were not responsible for that, right? The people you're killing didn't have anything to do with that genocide. And this conversation goes on for a while. I, I imagine this is actually going to be a big part of the discussion episode, but this is also an act break. So I think we can pause here. We can take stock of where we are before we get to the conclusion of this story, since I just zipped through a lot. Well, it will be a small part of our discussion, I'll say, but uh, it just depends on how, how my question asking goes and where it leads us. I, I really like this scene between Emil and Corco. Emil is known in the place where he lives as Zim because he's your classic uh, retired alcoholic sailor and Zim is the <laughs> is the drink that he drinks. So everybody just calls him by the drink that he's addicted to. And that's, I guess, a rough way of being. But <laughs> both of these guys realize that they got to change something about their lives. And through Emil's suggestions, Corrigo realizes that perhaps his crusade against humanity won't actually benefit 
anyone, including himself and, and Mala. And uh, they have a puppy. Now, I want to stop here and just talk about this. This, this puppy is brought up an, a number of times uh, in this section. You know, there's expressed concern about the puppy. Uh, it's referred to as Mala's dog in Benedict's vision. This particular creature in the story is something, I think if this were to be turned into a comic book, that I would really look forward to seeing interpreted for a visual medium. Because the word puppy is all that's used, and it's treated like Mala's pet, uh, sometimes Corgo's pet. And just as an aside here, a further aside, I think it's it's a really great choice of Zelazny's to give us so much of Corgo's life, his personality and downtime through Benedict's vision. So we're not switching points of view all the time. We do keep the focus throughout most of the story on the three heroes, particularly what Benedict sees. So that's really cool. But yeah, there's a puppy here. And I think we're meant to understand that it's actually the result of Corgo and Mala, the drillin, having a child together, though that's kind of kept hidden and, and maybe under the table a little bit. So this scene with Emil and Corgo is really great. I think also because it contrasts with the prior scene we saw where Corgo was rescued by the drillin. This time, Corgo is rescued by a human who cares about him and a human who has lost his own way. So it's a really nice humanizing scene that's meant to reintroduce Corgo into humanity instead of kind of being in this weird hybrid family with the, the Drillin. Uh, and so, yeah, they decide to basically become pirates instead of destroyers of the empire. There's one more world building note here that Zelazny drops kind of casually, which is that in the world that Kor goes on, the religion is Christian Zoroastrianism. And <laughs> that's really interesting. I wonder if Zelazny's indicating that those religions have merged, or if this is a subsect of Christianity or of Zoroastrianism. Uh, you know, there's a lot in common between Christianity and Zoroastrianism. You know, the big difference includes the specific uh, messianic figure of Jesus Christ in Christianity, uh, which is not present in Zoroastrianism. And there's a kind of more of an emphasis, as I understand it, on a kind of lowercase Manichaeism, uh, the conflict between good and evil and Zoroastrianism. But this is all just kind of the the background of the story. This is all stuff that's last and just like throwing in here. Right. I mean, this does not matter in any, in any particular way. It's just, it's just a kind of matter of fact thing. And we've got, you know, links, links religion gets some play here in the story as well. Zelazny is someone who is super into religion. I think people who are familiar with Zelazny as a, as a novelist will be aware of that. I mean, one of his, his most famous and really one of his best works is uh, in envisioning Hindu deities in, in space, essentially. That's maybe not quite the right way to pitch Lord of Light, but that, that's the pitch I'm giving to it right now. Uh, and he, he loves to write about religion. He really thinks quite a bit about religion. There's a lot of that going on in the Amber series as well. But also this just in general was something that science fiction writers were up to at this time, right? Like Arthur C. Clarke, I'm not even sure in what series, which series of stories uh, it is that he does this, but he had, makes a big deal out of the fact that Christianity and Islam actually merge and calls it Chrislam, for, which that's not really maybe the best name for it. That would have been the note <laughs> I would have given Arthur C. Clarke if I'd been in his writing group. 
Not that I would have ever been let into his writing group. I mean, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a big thing that people were interested in in the the sixties. This this period of science fiction writing was sort of envisioning what's going to happen with religions in the future. So I, I think your question's a valid one of like, what actually are we talking about here? Is some kind of hybrid? Is one of them dominant? Which one? I mean, yeah, it's a, and what a great writing prompt that is too. Okay, so. At this point, Corgo is retired from the revenge terrorism business, and he's just going to be a space trader now. What he's going to do is haul cargo from planet to planet. And this should work because now everyone thinks that he's dead. But of course, it's not going to work. Benedict, Lynx, and Sandor, they're hanging out. They're celebrating because, you know, their mission's been accomplished. They're all a bit sad to say goodbye to each other, especially Benedict and Sandor. They're quite lonely in their real lives. And they're all reminiscing. And Benedict picks up Corgo's heart and holds it and just gazes at it nostalgically, which is a pretty morbid scene, though I guess, you know, it's basically straight out of Hamlet, I suppose, as well. But then... As he's holding the heart, right, he sees something. He's seeing Corgo's mind again because, hey, Corgo is actually alive. So now Link sets up an intercept of Corgo's ship, and that works, uh, except that Corgo actually escapes again. He just makes like a, a random hyperspace jump, essentially. And some time passes, and then Benedict locates him again. He's on a planet repairing the ship, and it turns out that he's on this planet, the very planet where Benedict, Lynx, and Sandor have been working. And so now Lynx is going to take matters into his own hands. He's going to be not just the assassin, he's going to be the executioner. And he does it. He kills them all. Corgo and Emil... Mala, who, right, is the last of her species now, and then also the the dog who, you know, Brandon, you're supposing you're positing anyway, might actually be their child, though, you know, even if it is not, it is obviously meant to indicate to us that they form a family unit together. But they're all, they're all killed. Lynx kills them all. And this time, they positively identify Corgo's remains, and the job is really, truly complete. The team celebrates again, and here now is how Zelazny ends this story. Corgo is dead. And that was it. He should have known what he was up against and turned himself in to the proper authorities. How can you hope to beat a man who can pick the lock to your mind? A man who dispatched 48 men in 17 malicious alien life forms. And a man who knows every damn street in the galaxy. He should have known better than to go up against Sandor Sandor, Benedict Benedict, and Lynx Lynx. He should. He should have known. For their real names, of course, are Tisiphone, Electo, and Megara. They are the Furies. They arise from chaos and deliver revenge. They convey confusion and disaster to those who abandon the law and forsake the way, who offend against the light and violate the life, who take the power of flame like a lightning rod in their two, two mortal hands. What, what, an, what an ending here. <laughs> what an end to the story, yeah. right? I mean, we're told in this edition that the original manuscript title was Hunt Down the Happy Wallaby. Uh, and I think whoever ended up publishing this was right in changing it to the Furies here. Uh, let me just say a brief thing about the Furies and then we'll I have a few comments and then we can wrap up this episode and save save much for the discussion. But Electo is the punisher of moral crimes. Megara punishes infidelity, oath-breaking, things of that sort. And Tisiphone punishes murderers. And so what Zelazny has had to do in order to really tie the theme of the story together, the idea of the story together, is create a villain that displays all of these characteristics in his actions. So, I mean, our discussion episode is going to have to start with the moral questions first, like, 
who was really good, who was really bad, and go on from there. You know, are the Furies on the side actually on the side of good in in the case of the story? There's everybody just kind of bad. But I do have a few comments, as I said, about this section. The real tragedy of this story, in my opinion, is that all of the principal characters in this drama are motivated by love on some level and a need for community. And it's this very thing, this need for community that leads our, our super crew, our heroes to do, you know, one last job in order to keep their band together. Because it seems that they're not able to choose to remain together as their social obligations or their duties required of them by the government want to keep them apart. So it seems like these guys live in a world where the social forces that dictate their lives don't reward fraternization for its own sake. I mean, none of them really want to leave and go back to the life they were living, you know, even though Link's Link's life is essentially drinking pina coladas on a beach and thinking about <laughs> the unity of mankind, you know, which hey, maybe it's not so bad, but I don't know. You actually need to be a part of, uh, you know, other people's lives in order for that to make sense. You know, another thing that really jumped out to me in the end of this story is that Sandor doesn't really have a role in determining the location of Corgo in the final act of the story. And so his whole role in the story here is a question mark to me. I mean, he's the reason why the nurse was there to give Benedict his powers back, but we don't really need him because a lot of the information is like knowable without him. Uh, so I guess he's here to really give us this sense of pathos. He's like the heart of the group and Benedict is the brains and Lynx is the body. And so you have this kind of classic trifecta of characters uh, in literature that ne- you need in order to form like a, a team. Uh, this is all over storytelling, especially children's stories. I mean, this is Harry Potter, right? Harry Potter and Ron and Hermione form these exact same three sort of characteristics uh, or embody them. So yeah, the last thing I'll say here is that by the time we get to the end of the story, like the force behind Corgo's campaign of vengeance turns out to be Mala. Like she's a little... Maybe she's not as attracted to Corgo now that he's just kind of a space pirate on some level and a and a traitor on others. Uh, she really wants him to return to this vengeance because her whole race has been destroyed by the human interstell, uh, the interstellar federation or whatever. So that's also I you know kind of offloaded there at the end in a way that I find is is maybe not quite hitting the mark. Anyway, that's really all I have to say about this story at this point, but we're going to be talking a lot about the ethics in the background of this story when we get to our discussion and see if this story really hangs together. Yeah, there's an awful lot going on in this story. I mean, I did make a joke about how at some point how there was like a novel's worth of stuff, you know, just in like a two page spread of the story. And I think that might be one of the real critiques here is that this is actually a novel's worth of stuff here that he he put in. I I don't know. This is probably about 12,000 words, maybe 14,000 words would be my guess. So it could have been extended and it would have perhaps then answered a lot of the questions that we've got about this. But hey, on the other hand, we get to go now have a discussion episode where we try to answer those questions for ourselves. So I think at this point, uh, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. 
And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love for you to think about supporting the network and get access to dozens of bonus episodes, including, as we said, Nadelman's God by T.E.D. Klein. So please check us out on Patreon. Just go to our Patreon page, see what's there. Go to patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Check us out and think about supporting us. And if you can't support us right now, if, and if you haven't written a review of the podcast you listen to on our network, go to the place where you're listening to them. Go to Apple uh, and write a review for us. Both of those things, support from Patreon and reviews, help us grow. And we need your help to do that. Yeah, we really do appreciate everything that our listeners are doing to, to help us grow as a network and help keep us on the air. We really do appreciate all of that support. And we also really appreciate when you come and talk to us about the stories that we are covering. <laughs> so if you've got thoughts on on this before we get to the discussion episode, come on over to the Clay Temple forums or, or drop by our subreddit. Let us know what you thought of the, the Furies. We we'll look forward to having that conversation with you. But next time, we're going to be back with the discussion episode for this story. And until then... We greet you and say farewell.